1: What was the NBA like in the 70s? How did dribbling improve so dramatically back then? Was 1976 truly the golden age of the NBA? The only question left is say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring on author Adam Kribbley, who has just written a great book called Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J. Pistol Pete and the Birth of the Modern NBA. And he's also a professor at Southeast Missouri State. Adam Cribley, thank you for joining us today and to talk about your book and about the history of the NBA. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Uh, and You know, I thought we can kind of jump right into it because your focus is pretty much the 70s in the NBA starting there. And I think that there's a really interesting um, development that happens right around 1970. And I'm wondering if you can give me some more insight because it's kind of a fascinating thing where, you know, if you watch... Um, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals, I believe, it's like 67 between the Celtics and the, and the Philadelphia Warriors. You see guards that dribble with the right hand going to their left. You don't see a lot of dribbling ability at all, really. Nobody through the legs much or behind the back. And then all of a sudden, 1970-71 rolls around and you got guys doing spin moves, behind the back, crossovers in a very short time. And I'm wondering if you can help me get some insight into like, what happened there and why dribbling exploded at the NBA level.
0: Well, I think the one thing that has been looked at by by some historians is the the influence of the playground game, and so the playground game really picks up kind of mid to late 60s, and you have not only places like Rucker Park in, in New York City, but also um, in 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 Philly, the uh, Baker uh, Baker League, and that sort of thing. That uh, Doctor J, Pistol Pete, they're kind of coming of age, but maybe even more than that. Pistol Pete's a great example that. Newfound wizardry on the court, and um, another one though is is Earl Monroe. And Earl the Pearl had a mean spin move, could go either way. Uh, he could get in the lane and score. And so I think you have a generation of guys growing up on that street ball game, where I mean, if you're dribbling to your left with your right hand, you're gonna get it picked every time um, if you're playing on the playgrounds. And so some things that some bad habits maybe that even great players like Jerry West, you watch Jerry West trying to go left and. He might as well have tied his left hand behind his back, dribbling the ball. Um, but that his generation is kind of going out, and that playground style is definitely coming into the game in the early seventies.
1: You know, in Jerry's defense, uh, you know he actually showed this to me once. I was actually on the court with him, and he was describing some of the moves he used to use. And one of them was he would dribble the ball in his right hand and like have it. He would kind of gallop at his man with the right hand forward and the right foot forward. And kind of daring the man to reach in. And if he did, he would do like an inside out and keep it in the right hand then go right by him. So I will give him a little credit where even though obviously he, he really looked uncomfortable kind of going to his left hand, even though every once in a while he would. Um, he did at least have, there, there was some reason as to why you didn't just reach it and steal it. Like, that's, that's sort of like why, because I scratch my head a lot when I'm watching that, saying the guy could just knock it away every time. But at least for Jerry West, you know, perspective, he did have a move that would counter that to some degree. But um, I think you're right, because what's interesting for me as a coach is that, you know, at some point, uh, I have to imagine, like, the, like the playground stuff was happening Probably even in the 50s, right? We probably had spin moves and crossovers. That's that's fair enough to say, right? Right, and I think, I
0: mean, Bob Cousy clearly is doing it in the NBA. So it's not as if these are the first players to do it in the in the late 60s and 70s. But, yeah, the playground game goes to a different level, I think, mid-60s, late-60s.
1: Because I think the interesting parallel could very well be, you know, when the jumps, jump shot first came in, you know, Hank Lucetti or Kenny Saylors or whoever in, like, the 40s, you had coaches across the country saying no player will ever shoot that way for me, and I have to imagine there's a similar parallel that way to like the dribbling stuff where these coaches probably in the, were, that was why it didn't take hold until the 70s, which is why you know these coaches from the youth leagues on were probably even just saying nope, you're gonna you're not gonna do that fancy crossover behind the back stuff on my team, and then and the players as a result never really developed that until that explosion. Is that would you agree? Yeah, I would
0: agree, and I think that there's something to it too that. If a player throws a behind-the-back pass and it goes into the stands, that looks a lot worse than a player throwing a chess pass that goes into the stands. So I think there's that element of, well, you know, if, he's, if he's doing something fancy and it goes wrong, it's, it's so much more worse, I think, uh, from a coaching perspective than it is maybe for the, the, the simple play that, that is, uh, doesn't work out.
1: For sure, for sure, and and so and getting back to like you know the, the sort of the NBA and, and the dribbling stuff specifically, uh, it's funny because when you when you finally see it, you realize that it is actually fundamentally sound. It's, it is a better way to get around a player, right? To actually go to your other hand sometimes is is advantageous. Um, so you so you mentioned Pistol Pete, um, and and then there's all and he's usually the guy I think that people mention right away. But uh, right, there are other guys that suddenly took this into another direction. Um, and I think what happens is, like, Billy Cunningham is a good example, right? He was, an, I think, he was an all-star, right, in the late 60s. Sure. And he yep. was a guy that, you know, his skill was pretty low compared to, like, Clyde Frazier. So it's interesting, right? I think what we ended up seeing is, a, a, in a very short order, players who could have been really great in, like, 60, 68, by 71, wouldn't even be in the league, I think, right?
0: Sure, no, and there's a, there's a huge influx of talent, I think, that, Um, That comes into the league and you're right some players that had been all-star superstars in the late 60's a great example for me is Jerry Lucas Lucas was a fantastic player a multi-time all-star considered one of the greatest players in the league by many people in the 60's And by the 70's he's just you know he's a step slow He's, he's not able to use those the intellectual tools and those sorts of things because he's getting jumped over and um yeah, uh, so I think that there's certainly a generation, a generational change between the late '60s and early '70s that that all kind of culminates at
1: the same time. Sure, and I I think there's also it's not code, but I think what you're also saying is that after Earl Lloyd, you know, and they broke the racial barrier in the NBA in 19, what was was remember when that was what year that was uh, 1950 something. Yeah. Uh, Early 50s, yeah. So, so basically, and that, and that progression was still very slow for a long time, right? And so sure. eventually, though, by around 1970, I mean, it was still the percentage of African-American players is still low, but at least it was it was kind of getting higher and higher in a way that that influence clearly would, yeah, you would see some of these players who weren't great athletes. Uh, and by the way, not necessarily that that skilled either, right, to some degree. Uh, yeah, just being, being phased out. It, it, it's a natural order of selection, I suppose.
0: Yeah, no, completely, and it's it's really in. Uh, I don't have the exact year, but it's right around 1970 when the league becomes majority African American. So oh. uh, it's it's about fifty fifty in 1970, and by 1979, it's seventy five twenty five. So right. the influx of of talented African American players certainly jumps. And uh, again, um, you know, not with it's it's not coded at all to say that many of the African American players that are coming in had played that playground style because inner cities in the late 60s are predominantly populated by African Americans. So the, the players playing on the playgrounds are African Americans. They bring that aesthetic to the game. and so naturally the game's going to change when you have the more talented players coming in practicing that style.
1: Sure. And we know we can kind of take a deep dive into sort of what we're saying because I mean I think if you try and use that, it, it's sort of a racist term now if you want to use that like street ball f- phrase on sure. people like in, in, in organized basketball. Whereas in my mind, when you watch some of the stuff like Dr. J uh, at Rucker Park or earlier in the early 70s, it it actually feels like there was more structure on the playgrounds anyway, like sort of built in. It wasn't completely just one-on-one isolation, you know, like almost like we see now if you go to the park now. I feel like there was a little sense of movement and, you know, team stuff even back then on the playgrounds.
0: Sure. And and a lot of it's... Three on three, five on five, some combination of that. Three on three was pretty, really popular at the time, and so yes, if one person's going to one on one, his teammates aren't going to get him the ball the next time. And so there's there's a lot of it, it's not. You're right. It's not that playground one on one. Try to embarrass the guy in front of you every single time down the court. Uh, now some of that did get into the game, but a lot of it was there was ball movement. There are people working to get open and throwing the ball into the post and kind of cutting off of that. And so yeah, it's not it's not that stereotypical street ball. No one's playing defense. I mean they were. They were, uh, they, you know, it's it's very much a, a challenge to their masculinity if somebody scores on them. So they're not trying; they're trying not to let people score. They're they're working with teammates. It's it's not the style that we see and and maybe demean
1: today. Yeah, you know, it's it's worthy of like a, some sort of documentary. I don't know how much visual evidence exists right now from the playground style of you know, the fifties and the sixties because I would I would like to take a deep dive into that and do that because I feel like. You know, when I was growing up, for instance, in the, you know, 80s, early 80s, like, you know, there were just certain rules. Like, if the ball went to the high post, you cut to the basket from the wing. Yeah. No one ever taught you that. It just sort of, that's what you did. And I don't even think we have those rules anymore. That's not how young kids play anymore for, for whatever reason. But it seemed like even more so back then. And perhaps it's just because, you know, in the 50s, you were only, you know, 50 years removed from the invention of the game, basically, um, in a way that, like, those, the, the style had sort of, you know, was still taking hold and was still really strong over like, you know, those kind of immutable, uh, fundamentals, I suppose, of movement. Well, I think there's a time, it's a time of development. You mentioned earlier the jump shot. I mean, the
0: jump shot at that point is only 15 years old. So to move from a set shot to people going between the legs and behind the back. And that's, I mean, that it's a, it's a transformation. It's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. And so a lot of those fundamentals are still very much in place. The, you know, I always make the joke of the, uh, the Hoosiers move. You have to pass the ball four times before you shoot it. And that, while tongue-in-cheek, is kind of still what's going on on the playground. They're still moving the ball around. They're still looking for teammates and cutters. And they're, they're doing a lot more of that than, again, we
1: think of today. What's interesting is that when I think of the early 70s, I think of those old straight razors that gave people such great shaves. And you can get that same close, smooth shave from Harry's razors today. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price, founded by two guys named Jeff and Andy, who did something crazy. They bought a German razor factory and now make the highest quality blades for half the price of the leading five-blade razor. And you don't have to bother the clerk to open up the cabinet to prevent black market razor theft. They send them right to your door. They've also got great shaving cream, awesome-smelling post-shave balm, and And shaving sets that come with everything. Visit harrys.com slash coachnick and you'll get their trial set absolutely free. Just pay for some shipping. You'll get an an ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with lubricating strip, rich lathering gel, and a travel blade cover. Just head to harrys.com slash coachnick now and get that smooth shave you've been waiting for. You know the thing that was startling to me, as I'm reading your book and I'm going through, I'm just like calling up random YouTube videos to see real play as well, like the ABA NBA All Star you know uh, game in '72. They have on the full game, and then you can watch like the Bucks and the Knicks from '71. The thing that startles me the most about even particularly that the Bucks Knicks, which is I'm sure uh, extremely normal or uh, common in that era, was just how fast the game was. And um, I just did, interestingly enough, a a a big a little man video uh, breakdown. I don't know if you saw where I used I compared Tony Archibald's uh, best year to Allen Iverson and to Isaiah Thomas. And but when you compare the pace, it's insane how much faster they played back then. Um, Were you are you startled by that when you started digging into the research and watching some of this footage?
0: I am, and I'd I'd say that it was especially startling because when I started doing the research, I grew up a fan of you know basketball in the 1990s and so i was a Pacers Knicks heat like those rivalries to me were were what i knew basketball to be at that age and now watching it, i can't watch that it's you know the games 82 to 86 with 30 seconds left and it's 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 fouling and and physical uh no you, the the game in the in the early late 60s early 70s is is fast paced and the number of possessions that they get is insane and you look at things now like efficiency and the number of turnovers they're throwing the ball all over the place and uh, getting up and down it's exciting to watch but it's it's definitely jarring if you're not used to that style if you if you're used to the modern game or like me uh, grew up on the 90s that it almost looks like a different sport how how fast the game is in the early 70s
1: right and it's and, and so and it's exciting only because yeah we, we've even though we've kind of come back to that uh, if I'm not mistaken the pace uh, of the warriors last year which i think was number one or you know top five at least was like 99 and sure. the pace of the uh, well, well let's see when tiny did hit when tiny led the league in scoring and uh, in assists that year for for um, oh my gosh uh, the royals okay. right
0: was like one
1: was like one seventeen, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, like sure. Twenty yep, yep. percent more possessions, and that's just they were not number one uh, that year, as oh. far as I remember. So, uh, yeah, it's up and down in a way that like it's frenetic, uh, and the level, the skill level, still wasn't high enough. I think in the seventies, um, in a way that. While you might have seen turnovers and some weird ball handling and whatever, because they just you know the, the level hadn't improved like it is now, uh, the the excitement I think is rooted in the fact that you just never really knew what was going to happen from one play to the next. Whereas I think in comparison in the nineties. Right? You're like, okay, Ewing's going to go down. He's going to get the shot. (laughs) Right? And, you know, they're going to, Keem's going to get the ball. He's going to kick it out. They're going to shoot a three. Like, you kind of got the sense that, like, you knew what was going to happen. It was kind of predictable to some degree. Where, um, like, when I watch hockey now, I'm not a hockey fan, know anything about it, but it seems like the ice makes it just difficult enough where even the best players, they're still the ball. The the puck's still going to get loose a little bit and they're going to slip a little bit. And you never, you know, you never quite know exactly how it's going to go. And I think it's that jazz that we, you know, Phil Jackson even talks about in his books. Uh, that's what was so captivating, and I think it's what's we've finally come full circle, and hopefully I think we're recapturing more fans for the NBA now. Absolutely, and I think if you watch, the, the one big difference in the 70s is that there was still a huge reliance on the traditional
0: center that you threw the ball into in the low post. The difference from that in the Ewing era is you didn't throw the ball in the low post, and then four guys stand on the other side of the court and watch him. You throw the ball in the low post, people are cutting, people are shifting, they're trying to get some action where they get an open 12 to 15 footer, or the center's making a move. And so, yes, one of my favorite teams to watch from the early 70s is the Bulls. So they had a big center named Tom Boerwinkle. they throw it in, he's 7 foot, 280 pounds, and he just acted as a pivot. People would cut off him, he'd throw the ball over his head or behind his back. Fantastic passer from the post, but it's not that traditional... You throw it into the big man and everybody stands and watches him play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's much more like today, but there's also that pace, but there's also an emphasis on getting the ball inside. It's not trying to move the ball around for an open three in a corner. So it's, it's definitely a different type of, type of style.
1: For sure, and I, you know, I grew up in Chicago, and we had heard about those mythical Bulls teams. There was no <laughs> way to see those games, you know, sure. growing up. We just heard about Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan and and Borwinkel, uh, who you know was then he later did, did the radio commentary, so we we knew him yeah. from that. Um, and you know, but but if you watch it now, it's like I, it, while it is low post, it's also a lot of high post. A lot of elbow action, which is what we see today uh, more than ever, which really makes me excited because it tells you that that was right. Like they understood when Dutch Dennert in the 20s and the original Celtics was doing high post action, like they understood then how the game kind of worked and should be played. Um, and I agree. So I, and I, and I think that there, it's an unmistakable influence from someone like John Wooden who ran the UCLA high post offense, um, for the most part, except for when, uh, Lou was there, they went a little bit more low, but still, he still played high. And I feel like what you see there is a lot of, um, sort of that system basketball, which is free form and not called plays, but the, uh, spacing and alignment was pretty, um, I don't want to say strict, but certainly pretty, um, I guess what's the word uh, you know regimented to some degree. Like all five players knew where they were all kind of going on a hand, right? Sure. And you see a
0: lot of spacing there. So you see, for example, if you throw the ball into Borwin, called the high post, guards are cutting off him. But on the weak side, you've got Bob Love or Chet Walker kind of spacing the floor. And if his defender sloughs in, then you've got a 15-footer on the on the opposite wing. And so there's de- it, without a three-point line, they're not spacing to 23 feet. They're spacing to 16 or 18. Uh, but it's still that that very similar type of their spacing, you know, dare I use the term, you know, pace and space. There's a little bit of that already going on kind of in the in the 70s, especially with some teams. Uh, one thing I really like, though, is that not every team played that way. So if you watch the NBA in the early 70s, to the to throughout the 70s, you have so many different styles of play that there's not that follow the leader. Everybody has to play the same style as the modern day, you know, Golden State Warriors. Because of their success, every team's going to try to replicate that. Every team kind of had a unique style, and and I think it, it made the game a lot, um, a lot more you know distinct, and that you would watch. A Kings-Bulls game looks a lot different than a, a Lakers-Knicks game then, and and I think that that's something that I really enjoyed watching uh, from that decade.
1: Yeah, the you know, other thing I think also con- uh, connects with that is the region, like where you were from, and I think it's probably more like on the high school, maybe college level, it was a little bit more like that, but depending on what part of the country you were in, sort of dictated how you played the game. I mean, this was going back a little bit earlier than the 70s, but I kind of feel like there was a connection there where you know, like Indiana was just fast-break basketball, and you York was sort of give and go and right and you know it's sneaky kind of stuff and uh, you know interestingly enough it's until Wooden got here as far as I can tell my research was you know California was a sort of a slow paced they didn't dribble a lot they kind of didn't want to pass the ball up uh, uh, quickly up the court Um, and I feel like that there's there's some connection to that too or certainly at least where the players were growing up regionally influenced them all the way up through the NBA.
0: Absolutely and I think something else that was uh, that I always enjoy watching is so they didn't have the um, they didn't have the the textbook shooting strokes, and so you've got some really unique kind of releases, and and so the whole game. You're right. There there are definitely regional variations in the game that I think certainly are from earlier times, but even through the 70s, Indiana fans wanted that fast-paced up and down basketball. The you know, and, and I think that that's maybe uh, best you know explained by looking at the the Lakers. We think about the Showtime Lakers of the 80s that fast break style. Well that originated really in the early seventies with the uh the seventy two Lakers that Wilt Chamberlain got a rebound and would outlet it to almost half court and then they're they're fast breaking. And so uh definitely these styles I think certainly began earlier but definitely continue through the seventies.
1: For sure, for sure. And, and the shooting is a great point, too, because, you know, we, we've we been slowly refining the fundamentals of how to teach shooting. And I feel like if you were playing in 1971 in the NBA, you grew up, let say you were probably, what, 10 in 1961, and that means you were being taught the same fundamentals that were to being taught in 1941, probably. There really hasn't been a lot of the right. difference there. And and that was still when two-handed set shots were being shot. So uh, it's, it's a really kind of a fascinating evolution of of how that was all taught and then how it ultimately, you know, got it to the the game and then i feel like every year that I'd go by you know i think more of these players move to more of a natural like okay they're showing me 10 toes of the rim, they're showing me this up but that's not really how they did it and you kind of get at, at every level of you know from high school to college to the pros you kind of see them get farther away from like these strict notions of how you're supposed to do it yeah. um and as well then you get some really interesting things uh as far as shooting goes um so you know what i find the most interesting thing about um about what happens with you know in the mid '70s and as we progress was it sort of feels like the golden age of the NBA, maybe even more so than even now was after the ABA merger, and you started to throw another you know 20 of the best players in the world on into the NBA. It kind. Of, what I would notice from those years, from '76, uh, you know, to '80, was not only did you have the best athletes, the best skilled players playing all on the same court, but they were playing, you know, uh, triangle offense. You'd see Princeton, you'd see UCLA high post. These sort of regimented, really great five-man system basketball, um, and it combined with great athleticism and skill. Like to me, that's some of the best basketball I've still seen to this day. Sure, and I think that. You um, those stars all come in and
0: they are playing systems, they are playing uh, that that type of game. And really the only time that they have that isolation clear out is, hey, we need Dr. J to get a bucket because it's a tie game with 11 seconds left. And they're not relying on that every time down the court. And so they're running all these different offenses, These, as you said, these very kind of regimented offenses. Um, but you have some incredibly creative players running them. And so they still have the high-flying, the exciting play. I've... I, I talk about this in the book, but I'll I'll say till my grave that the '76-'77 season was the most exciting season in basketball history because you have four well two really good teams and the Pacers and the uh, and the Spurs coming in or no the Pacers and the the Nets neither team was great um but you have all these this superstar talent coming in all at once that is unprecedented and um and it just it revolutionized the game and so I think that people that point to Magic and, and, and Larry Bird coming in, in nineteen eighty as being the pivot. I I think that it's it's seventy six, it's when the merger happens that we really see this like you said, it's it's a short lived golden age, but there's it's it's some high quality basketball for the most part in that four or five year stretch.
1: For sure. And the interesting thing is as you got a little bit farther into the seventies and to the end of the seventies, what you then would see would be, you know, nice regimented five man system basketball, but as they got a little bit tired and as the quarter progressed, it would kind of get devolved into some more one on one and the game would get right. kind of messy, and the coach would call timeout and say, Okay, guys, remember we run, you know, let's run our get our two guard front whatever, and then they would do it again and they get a little tired. So it's interesting. We, we kind of started to see this, this slow dissolution of that and then into the 80s, but what's interesting to me is that what you notice is in the 70s, you see a lot of two-guard front offenses, like almost exclusively, and then it something happens, and I'm wondering what your take on it is, uh, that all of a sudden, around you know, 79, and I think that I'm, I'm leading you on this question, but certainly something happens where all of a sudden it goes to a one-guard front, and most teams want that one lead guard uh, out there, and I'm wondering if you've noticed that or, or have any sense of an evolution of how that, that, that transformed. No, you're right. I I think you're you're
0: right in tracing it to the late set or to, to 78 79. Um I think in in part it's because the league's getting bigger and so you have you're bringing in wing players now that are 6'5, 6'6, 6'7 in some cases. George Gervin's playing small or playing shooting guard and he's 6'8. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a good ball handler, but he's a scorer, he's a slasher. He's not a um the the prototypical point guard. Uh if you look at like the 72 Lakers, for example, that have Gail Goodrich and um, and nice. Jerry West, they have Two guys that can handle the ball really well, um, and that that and their teams. The the seventy five Warriors are a great example, a really super deep team that has a number of guys that can handle the ball, uh, but are, are six six foot six two six four. I think there was that that um, fascination that that love of the big guard that I think is part of it at least. So you're you're getting away from the two playmakers and you're going to one playmaker with two slashers. Uh, or shooters on the wings and I think that that's part of it I you know I didn't I didn't find anything definitive it, a reason for that transition but it just feels like Billy Knight of the Pacers another example the 6566 six guy that could get buckets but he's not a great ball handler you don't want him to to come and initiate the offense. So I think that could be part of it.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, I, that, that all makes perfect sense, too. I, I kind of feel like part of it was magic and Isaiah. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, but, and all of a sudden, and that trickled down very quickly to, uh, you know, even the high school level. I remember, you know, if I would have had a two-guard front, I had to play point guard, but I wasn't a great ball handler. I was much more of a shooting guard. I, I would have been a lot easier for me because when uh, there's a guard next to me, I could relieve the pressure. But instead, they're like, here's the ball. Here's the 50 feet. Good luck, you know, and, and go up. And I, I a lot of it, I think, has to do with magic and, and those guys who came in all of a sudden. They wanted that dynamic one guard leading the break and then leading the offense. The funny thing is, is when I had talked to Pete Newell about this. And, uh, you know, when you have a two guard front and two forwards and one center, you kind of have a more open floor. Whereas when you have one guard on top and two forwards, you got to have two guys like down by the baseline or in the corner or something. Their men can get in the way down by the basket a little bit easier. So I always found that an interesting argument that a two guard front actually spaces the floor better.
0: Well, it's, uh, we mentioned that Bulls team earlier. That always sticks with me that Dick Mata had – his his alignment was he wanted two guards to be able to guard the basket if the other team came on a fast oh, yeah. break. His yeah. forwards were going forward to try to score the basketball, and the center is in the middle as a pivot. I'm like, wow. It's as if the you know the, the names of the positions kind of fit there. And but, but you don't see that later, and you're right. By the late 70s, it's the point guards getting back, and, and the point guards initiating the offense, and
1: everybody else is kind of in, in scoring position. You know, you just blew my mind because you're right. In theory, if you want to think about getting back on defense, that's why you call those guys guards and why you call the other guys forwards. I, you know what? I'm not even really sure I appreciated that uh, until just right. now.
0: Right. And I didn't until I read Mata. It was one of Mata's books or he had a quote in an article or something. I, uh, but, yeah, and that, and that I had the same kind of moment. of like, oh, well, wow. guards and forwards. That makes great sense.
1: What, did you talk to that Mata? Or to, to, uh, not that Mata. Excuse guy. Did you talk to Dick Mata at all for this, for this uh, book?
0: I'm an Ohio State fan, so Thad Mott is still kind of hurt. All right, fair Um, enough. I don't think there's a relation, uh, by the way. Is there?
1: No, he spelled it differently, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, Um, but no, I I actually, I I intentionally didn't talk to any players or coaches for this book because um, some of my other work is done with things like historical memory and how people remember the past, and I didn't, I really didn't want the book to be colored with those rose-colored glasses of, hey, forty years ago, this is what I remember and Um, In working on a a project since then, I've talked to players and had great conversations. But it's still – there's always that element of they remember things maybe differently than than actually happened. And um, fun story about that. So I I wanted to to get blurbs for the back of the book. And so I managed to get a hold of Dave Cowens. Had a great conversation with Dave Cowens. And he said, yeah, send me a copy of the book. And uh, again, had a a fantastic conversation. Great guy to talk to on the phone. Um, But he looked at the book and said, you know, I I don't think I want to – write a blurb because I see some inaccuracies. You know, I never said this and so I went back to my sources and you know, the New York Times said he said that, but uh, 40 years and later and maybe he remembered it a little differently or maybe he didn't say that and it was misreported, but I decided that I didn't, I, I was glad I didn't have a book full of those sorts of um, contradictions I had to iron out. So sure. I, I did talk to Dick Mata, but I, I, I read a lot of his stuff and super smart guy.
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny because you, you know what he does now? Who's that, Mata? Yeah. No, I don't. He, he runs a bed and be- breakfast uh, with his wife, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in a way that I, I kind of, it's. Well, I got to figure it out, it's the Bluebird Inn, I'm just looking it up right now, because I got to remember it's in Utah, where is it? It's, um, I forgot what, what state it's in, but it's a beautiful little bed and breakfast, and it's like, can you imagine, like, you show up to stay at this place, and all of a sudden it's this, a legendary Chicago Bulls coach who, uh, you know, won a, a title with, uh, wait, uh, let's see, Dick Mata won it's with really like- Washington? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and later on. And so, um, anyway, I think that's hilarious. And so, I, I'm going to have to try and you've inspired me to get him on the show and see if I can't get him to call in. Uh, I've had Frank Layden on once, and that, which is an amazing uh, pod. And so, at any rate, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is really fascinating because you're talking a lot about, um, you know, sort of the, the influence we're talking about of like coaches, you know, probably was never at its, at its greatest than like at the 70s. Or maybe that was when it peaked, and then, it's, you know, the influence has slowly gone down, I think you can argue. Maybe back it's kind of back now um, to where it used to be. Uh, I was thinking, though, um, can we let, let's let's spotlight a few of the more interesting quirky characters that you encountered uh, while writing this book that maybe like caught your eye that that you hadn't really heard about before.
0: Well, I think one from a from an on court standpoint, like I mentioned earlier, was Tom Bullerwinkle, this kind of uh, big pass, you know, passing big man. Uh, you mentioned earlier as well, tiny Archibald. Mm -hmm. I knew the points and assists that he was the only person to have led the league in those and all that sort of thing. But just the way that he played was always amazing that he was, uh, and, and I like that you, your comparisons with, with Iverson and such that he could get into the lane and score. Um, as far as quirky off court personalities, honestly, one of my favorite that I came across is, uh, um, Neil walk. And so Neil Walk was drafted second behind Lou Alcindor, who'd become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the Suns basically lost a coin flip, and so they're stuck with Walk, and uh, Jabbar. Alcindor goes to to Milwaukee. Walk was hilarious, and he was such a character. Like, um, he he ends up going to the Knicks later in his career. He bounced around a little bit, had a couple really good seasons where he's averaging, I don't have the numbers up, 18 and 8 or something like that, where he's putting up good numbers, and. um, he became a vegetarian, lost 25 pounds, didn't have the didn't have the strength to push around inside. But some of the things he was he was a fantastic uh, um, source for reporters who wanted to quote. If they wanted something unfiltered, players to drop the f bomb, like they would go to Neil Walk, and he was going to supply that every time. <laughs> uh, so so he was one of the fun personalities that I just I knew him as the guy who got drafted after Kareem. But the more you dig into it, like wow, there's really some interesting characters that kind of emerge out of that that 70s, uh, out of that era
1: absolutely you know one guy that kind of um you know and by the way that guy was as hairy as anybody could be like I remember when you <laughs> oh, see yeah. those that footage it's like it's his back and his chest is crazy I don't know maybe players are waxing these days but uh you know uh and it was it's always fun to watch those early 70s teams because they ran the triangle offense with you know Cotton Fitzsimmons sure. was the coach who had been Tech's winner's assistant at K-State and uh and they ran it probably as, as well as any other team probably maybe even better than the Bulls ever did uh even then you know one guy that caught my mind uh my eye as i'm reading your book was this guy wendell ladner um who to me played in the aba and you know, obviously there's no no book would be complete about the nba in the 70s without having to talk about the M- aba a little bit but um this guy sounded kind of like jackie moon
0: <laughs>
1: he was he was a playboy i mean he he looked like burt reynolds and so he would
0: you know he had this he had this great 1970s mustache and uh he was a teammate of Dr. J's in um, in, in New York with the Nets, and uh, unfortunately died in a plane crash uh, shortly after they won the title in 74-75, right in there somewhere. But he w- he was a good player. He was he was very Jackie Moon. He was uh, not as skilled in basketball as he was um, a with the ladies and b with. He was an enforcer. He'd come off the bench and 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 beat some people up a little bit, and then after the game, he you know. He'd go to the nightclub and be out till two, three, four in the morning. He'd kind of had he had girlfriends in every every city, and just a fantastic character, total playboy, and uh, um, but also really an on-court enforcer. So it was just a really interesting mix.
1: For sure. Yeah. It just kind of struck me like there's something there about that, which I'm sure there was probably more more of those kind of characters, too. Um, now, the other, let me ask you this, like a, as you sprinkle in sort of cultural touchstones uh, that were going on outside of basketball in the book, uh, in, you know, concurrently with what's going on on the court. Um, were there any kind of, you know, things that struck you as like really sort of interesting parallels as well that you didn't sort of think about beforehand or had any kind of influence on what was going on, you know, in, in the NBA? Sure. Um, the best example of that to me is I went to Kent State University in Ohio for my master's
0: degree, so I knew all about the Kent State shootings in, in May of 1970. Well, I didn't put that into basketball context until I was pretty deep in my research and found that that was during the NBA Finals in 1970, the, the very famous Nick Lakers, Willis Reed comes out and limps onto the court. Um, that's Game sevens maybe played a week later, but they actually played the day after Kent State, and so... Um, that Knicks team's interesting in that two of the players, I believe it was Mike Riordan and Cassie Russell, had, um, they were members of the National Guards. So they missed some time because they were serving in the National Guard during the season. Well, it, at, at Madison Square Garden before, I think it's game five maybe, where Willis Reed actually hurts his, him, himself, uh, they play the National Anthem and there are people in the upper decks that aren't sitting for the National Anthem. They're smoking pot in the third deck at, at Madison Square Garden. Wow. Um, just this very kind of politically and emotionally charged time in history. And, uh, uh, you know, the fact that the NBA is not immune to this is, and, and that, that Knicks team's a fan, you know, fantastically interesting because not only do they have guys like Riordan and Russell playing for the nas- or participating in the National Guard, they've got Phil Jackson, who's very outspoken about his um, uh, opposition to the war. They've got Bill Bradley, who ends up becoming Senator Bill Bradley, uh, very outspoken in his opposition to the war. And so it's this really kind of unique mix. But I never put two and two together that May of 1970, they're playing the, this iconic finals at the same time at Vietnam and May 4th in, uh, in Kent State.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that I was definitely struck by that when I started to read it. I'm like, oh, you know, you, you don't often think about the context of like what's going on, uh, especially then. I feel like that we've heard about certain times in the '60s where we saw Lou Alcindor and like and um, you know Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali dealing with a lot of things that are going on politically, but not necessarily as much in the '70s. And so uh, that was really interesting. One big thing for me that made me perk up is. You know, nobody knew this until I started. I mean, I, no one ever mentioned this before. So I had, and I'm a big JFK uh, conspiracy freak, um, and that 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 kind of naturally gets to Watergate. I'm sure, as a historian, you you probably understand there are a lot of connections, uh, either fringe or not, uh, that connect JFK and Watergate. But when I was looking at some stuff, like you realize that the Watergate offices uh, that they broke into in 1972 were uh, that of um, Larry O'Brien. And I, I almost fell off my chair because I'm like, wait, that can't be the same Larry O'Brien as the Larry O'Brien trophy. And sure enough, it is. Um, did you – did anything else come across when you were doing research about that that like struck your uh, – that, that caught your eye? Well, no, but that
0: – his uh, his experience with the Democratic National uh, National Party was a big reason why he got the post in 70, 70 – when did he come in? 74 maybe? Mm-hmm. Um but it's it, it's a big reason why he got that gig was that experience, and in fact he was he was seen as kind of the um, uh, the dark horse candidate when he came in. There was a the deputy commissioner was a man named Simon Gordine who was an African American, highly qualified, had basically served as the, uh, you know, the he was the deputy um, uh, prior, so he was kind of seen as the heir apparent. Well, they went outside the organization because they wanted somebody because of all the. Political things going on with the merger and the lawsuits going on. They wanted someone that had uh, a stronger political background. So no, the fact the fact that his uh, his offices were broken broken into and that he played a, a leading role in that was a big reason why O'Brien ends up getting the gig.
1: Okay, well, and that was that well that. What that leads me to believe is that we need to talk to David Stern because I think he would end up knowing <laughs> w- what really happened with Watergate because sure. <laughs> there's too many questions yeah. unanswered, uh, and we know that Larry O'Brien's not around anymore. But but uh, certainly David Stern was his right hand man uh, for quite a long time before he took over in '85, I think. So uh, right. fascinating stuff when that pops up in my mind. Uh, one thing I didn't know uh, reading the book was that Dr. J was actually drafted by the Bucks. Uh, we all had heard about the Hawks trying to sign him outright and play with Pistol Pete, which would have been amazing. Did you, by the way, did you come across any video footage of those um, of those games, uh, the, the uh, preseason games that they played together?
0: No, and uh, I, I've seen some some pictures. One of the amazing things to me was that one of the best the best um, firsthand account that we have of those games, other than some newspaper stuff, is actually David Thompson. So David Thompson ends up becoming a superstar for the Nuggets. Went to those pre, or at least to one of the preseason games, and later writes all about how it was this amazing connection. And uh, so it's interesting, kind of the, the, le- the level there. But no, to the best of my knowledge, there's no video that exists of that. Um, just some pictures that we have that, uh, and, and a lot of firsthand accounts that say it was just magic to watch those two. On the same team,
1: yeah, that, it tantalizing. However, what would have been even more tantalizing would have been if they, if the Bucks had want, gotten their way. Uh, I can't imagine what that would have been like with Oscar, Dr. J, and a, a young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, that would have been a dynasty. I can't imagine them losing, uh, you know, very many games.
0: No, and with their skill sets, the way they complemented each other, they, you're not. There's not a lot of redundancy there, and so. Um, you know, a point guard, a small forward, and a center, all three. Oscar was, was clearly past his peak at that point, but he could still he could still go. And some of those Bucks players are underrated, too. They had a guy named John McLaughlin that could stretch the floor, if you want to use a modern term, at shooting guard. They had some athletic power forwards that could kind of do some garbage work. So, no, that would have been, I, that would have been the, the dynasty of the 70s. And I argue in my book that I don't think there really was a dynasty of the 70s, and I think that that's, that certainly would have been if they could have kept it together for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, for sure, and then and then you know obviously the, the dynasty that was should have been was the Knicks and and they sure. you know they, I guess they got two in the early '70s but then uh, you know got derailed by injuries and whatnot so that was tough uh, and you're right the, there really wasn't one I think you know the the most interesting thing about the merger as we wrap this up is is that you know they the Philly ended up getting Dr. J and they had a pretty much you know like a Miami Heat wouldn't you say they were like the Heat of 2010. Uh,
0: Sure. Yeah, they had a couple star players, and we focus on Dr. J, but they were a team of superstars. They had uh, George McGinnis. um, They had Doug Collins. Both Doug Collins had been a number one overall pick. McGinnis was probably the best player in the ABA. Well, he was a top four or five player in the ABA, um, other than Dr. J. And I mean, having those three on the same team just—they were a mega team. Let alone the cast of characters that they had, uh, you know, on the bench and everything. But they, they were. They, they had a big three for sure in, uh, in you know, 76-77.
1: Yeah, and, I, and I, what I loved about the fact is that they ended up getting beaten by the, the Blazers, uh, led by, you know, Bill Walton and then sort of a bunch of uh, role players in, in a way. Um, and, and the style of play was really striking. We've done a, a video on that uh, on one of those games where you can just see how – uh, the, the Blazers kind of ran what you described, like in, in, in um, Chicago, with a lot of cutting, a lot of movement. And the Sixers, in their all star mode, sort of kind of isolated a lot and didn't have as much movement, and they lost. And I thought that was a really fascinating you know, moment of time where we got one of our last, you know, for a while, uh, sort of these, like, you know, team of not huge stars, not big names, overcoming a, a star a laden team. That was exciting.
0: It was, and at the time it was definitely seen as, a, as an upset. The Sixers were, were clearly favored because they had that big three. It's kind of akin to the uh, 2011 when, when Dallas uh, beat Miami, and it's that Dirk surrounded by a bunch of quality role players in a very similar way uh, of with Walton in 77.
1: For sure. Well, uh, awesome stuff. I can't recommend enough for people to go out and buy the book. It's called Tall Tales and Short Shorts. Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the birth of the modern NBA. And there's no question, it certainly, that is the time. That is ground zero, 1970, pretty much, is when, uh, as we talked about, dribbling kind of exploded, uh, pace was at its highest uh, of all time, and just a really exciting game, and then the ABA merger. So um, really great stuff, Adam. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and discussing this, and, uh, you know, we could, we could do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Coach. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You win. Are you an Adam? Absolutely.